внимание говорит и показывает Москва. Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин. Нас никто не слушал. Послушайте сейчас. Привет, это Навальный. Я уже делаю свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности гоним вас. С новым веком. Western sanctions against Belarus finally appear to be targeting Alexander Lukashenko's enablers in Russia. When the United States, the European Union, Canada and the United Kingdom announced a new round of sanctions against Minsk regime this week, one name in particular stood out. Russian businessman Mikhail Gutsereev, the largest single investor in Belarus who was included on the EU's list of sanctioned individuals. Given the expanding Russian economic footprint in Belarus and the close ties between the two countries, many are arguing that you cannot just sanction Belarus. You need to sanction the Putin-Lukashenko axis of autocrats and kleptocrats. The Europeans took a big step in this direction this week. So what happens next and what should happen next? Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore, and I'm an adjunct assistant professor at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Washington's hip DuPont Circle neighborhood just down the street from me is Ilya Zaslavsky, a senior fellow at the Free Russia Foundation. Welcome Welcome back, Ilya. Uh, good to be here, Brian. To have you. And also joining us from Capitol Hill is the one and only birthday boy, Paul Massaro, a public hey! advisor at the United States Commission for Security and Cooperation in Europe, better known as the U.S. Helsinki Commission, an independent bipartisan bicameral commission in the United States Congress. Welcome back to the Vertical Paul and happy birthday. Ah, thanks so much, Brian. So good to be here. I can't imagine a better birthday to be spending on the Vertical. I, 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 I can't imagine a better two guests to have for this topic. So, Ilya, let's start with you. You must be feeling a bit vindicated because in a recent report that we discussed in this program, you argued that Kremlin-connected oligarchs or Kremlgarchs, as you dubbed them, who enable the Lukashenko regime should be sanctioned this week. The EU appeared to take your advice. It seems you got some influence in Brussels and sanctioned one of the people you named, Mikhail Gutsereev. Uh, what's your reaction? Uh, I'm very glad it happened. Obviously, I think it happened primarily because uh, Belarusian diaspora and opposition paid close attention to his actions and they alerted, they've been lobbying EU structures uh, openly through newspapers. And uh, I knew about that oligarch for many years, but actually I did get some additional information for, for my report on this guy uh, from them. But a lot of it is open sourced information. And I mean, my, my hope is that the US is next uh, in sanctioning him and uh, sanctioning maybe more guys that are, uh, were either on sanctions lists of the US and EU in 2010, but now are off uh, the lists, or, or some people who never made it to the list, but should be there. And I mean, we could discuss it. Uh, in yeah, no, there's a few people. I, I wrote a piece for the Atlantic Council this week, uh, citing your work, Ilya, and uh, also citing David Kramer's testimony before the Human Rights Commission of the US, US House of Representatives calling for, by name, several people to be sanctioned. There's a few names I would like to see and a few companies I would like to see added to this list, Russian companies that are enabling Belarus. Paul, how do you see this expansion of sanctions to include Russian enablers by the Europeans? Should the Americans follow suit? 
Will the Americans follow suit? Do you have any information that maybe the Americans might follow suit? And also, Paul, I want to get your your take on this week's announcement because it was, for the first time I've seen this, a coordinated joint announcement by the U.S., the EU, Canada, and the United Kingdom. I mean, in the past, we've tended to, to kind of coordinate our sanctions policy. But I thought this was pretty dramatic, all of us announcing a kind of even in a joint – there was even a joint statement between the U.S., the U.K., uh, the EU, and Canada. Uh, what's your reaction to all of this and on the good today of uh, – Oh, there's so much to say on this, and it's also exciting. And I, and I, and I guess um, with regard to the, the coordination piece, I guess I'll, I'll start there. I'll start at the, the, the bottom and work my way back and say that coordinated sanctions are – the bomb, if you can get them, absolutely the best. And this is not the first time we've seen this. We saw this actually back in, I think it was February, we saw coordinated global Magnitsky sanctions against human rights violators, those that are engaging in the uh, in the genocide in Xinjiang, those that are those that are engaging in the genocide of the Uyghur people. Um, and in fact, those were so uh, impactful that the, the, the Chinese Communist Party reacted by essentially shooting itself in the foot in sanctioning a number of scholars and parliamentarians in Europe thereby freezing their comprehensive agreement on investment, this very controversial uh, treaty that had been going on between uh, the European Union and the People's Republic of China. So that was that was the, the first time we saw truly, like, as you say, Brian, like Canada, UK, USA, EU, all lining up and saying, we're doing this together, we're doing it right away. And of course, when you can get that, it's extremely, it's extremely impactful. So that is really exciting. As far as oligarchs and, and and kleptocrats go, I mean, you know, I've made my position on this very clear a number of times. I think they should all be sanctioned immediately tomorrow, you know. And I think that <laughs> I think that I think that sanctions just generally have been kind of misunderstood. I think that there's this obsession with sanctions as a behavioral change tool. And I understand that because people are thinking from a realist perspective and power politics and states and all that kind of stuff. Sanctions are a defensive tool. They are mm -hmm. they are a way that we can say we are not gonna be complicit in your evil. We are not going to allow these villains into our financial system, onto our shores. We, you know, we're we're not going to allow global criminals. We're not going to allow kleptocrats uh, in, and we're not going to allow our our professionals to become enablers. That is to say, to our professionals to work for them. So, so I mean, I think that the more you can do against these oligarchs, the better. And in fact, sanctions against oligarchs are the only ones that really matter as far as targeted sanctions go. So when you when you hit a goon or a cop or somebody that's you know. Uh, uh, kind of doing the regime's dirty work. Who cares? That person was never going to go to the West anyway. They don't have any assets in the West. It's not that big of a deal. When you hit Kutsarev, that's a big deal. And that was yep. very exciting to see. So I guess when I think about that, I always think about like, wow, the EU ahead of the game. Ahead of the US. First, well, this is, is this what I wanted the first to time we've seen the, the EU known for its extremely slow foreign policy, known for spoilers. And in this case, it seemed like Austria was a spoiler for quite some time, right? Mm -hmm. So remember these... These sanctions are late. You know, they're 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 good. They're great, uh, but they're late. And and it seems like they're late because because they've been held up through the, you know, classic EU lowest common denominator foreign policy process. And yet here we are with the EU ahead of the UK and the US. So absolutely the USA must catch up. I mean, what what the heck? And then beyond that, the UK, you know, of course had made this big to do about the fact that they could move more quickly than the EU now. And yet here's the EU ahead of them. You know, and we know that Gutsareyev has money in the UK, so the UK needs to crack down Gutsareyev as well. So it's 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 very strange to have this coordinated sanctions package that seems to target a lot of goons, um, and that's good, and that's a statement. But the actual most meaningful sanction that's happened here is on Gutsareyev, and that is the EU being further ahead of everybody else. So you know, big congratulations to the European Union. This is this is really the first time I've seen, you know, in recent memory of the EU 
being out ahead uh, of the other democratic powers. Without revealing any top secret information, Paul, do you have any indication that the United States is going to follow suit? If I told you, I'd have to kill you, Brian. <laughs> you know, it would not be good, you know, and then every listener of this podcast would be in trouble, you know, like, let's, 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 let's avoid those discussions. Let me, let me rephrase that. Do you expect the United States to come to, to, to follow suit? I mean, it seems, it would seem strange I not. I would expect uh-huh. the United States to follow suit. Yes. And I, and I'd expect the Brits to follow suit too. Um, and the that, that said, the, the, one of the problems with having this kind of structure, I'm not, you know, I don't know all the internal dynamics of this, but the EU being ahead of this is Gutsareev. I mean, he should be shaking in his boots. He should be moving his money out of the UK. He should be moving his money out of the USA. He should be moving his money out of Canada. But then, I mean, that's the thing. When when the USA, the UK, Canada, and the EU all do stuff together, where are you going to put your money? You know, right. like, I mean, right. there's just, like, what, you're going you're gonna to put it in China? You're going to put it in Dubai? You're going to put it in a place where it can be easily expropriated? Yeah. No, you want it under the rule of law. Because you want to be protected by enablers, you want to be protected by lawyers. It's, I mean, it's the that's the whole perverse thing about kleptocracy, right? You steal it in a place without the rule of law, and then you put it in a place with the rule of law. But if we block out the entire rule of law world, you're stuck. What is he going right. to do? You know, you're stuck. So that's really that's really terrific. So I'm I'm hoping, and I and I do expect us to catch up to the EU on this one. These sanctions certainly did get the attention of Belarus. The Belarusian foreign ministry put out a statement calling this a declaration of economic war. And the Russian ambassador to Belarus came out and said that Russia will do everything to defend Belarus. So this appears to have gotten the attention of people in Minsk and in Moscow. Shares in Gutsareyev's companies were falling the last the last time I checked. Ilya, I want to go to you because I, I wrote about this a bit this week and you know, naming a bunch of other people that you and I have both named in the past in our work. People like Dmitry Urubulev, German Gref. I also named a bunch of companies, the, the uh, three banks, VTB, VEB, Gazprom Bank, as well as Gazprom itself, Rosneft, Slavneft, and Uralkali. What I'd like you to do, Ilya, because you know more about this than anybody, is kind of go through some of these people. Like, what is Gutsariev doing for Belarus, and why is the, why is that important? What is Rubelovyev doing for Belarus, and why is that important? What is German Greff doing for Belarus, and why is that important? Great question, and... Uh... In fact, uh, I'm, I'm amazed that still so few people among policymakers know this. And uh, I'm so glad the Belarusian opposition and Russian opposition are trying to educate and get this acknowledgement. So Gutsariev uh, has been selling oil and potash, some of the main export products for Belarus, and pro- essentially providing uh, hard currency flows to Lukashenko. It's uh, you know a, a lifeline for him. Previously, he used other entities and... Uh, oligarchs, but uh, Gutsariev came out to be uh, the best channel in the last at least two, three years. Gutsariev attended his semi-secret uh, inauguration for Lukashenko uh, after the rigged elections. Uh, Gutsariev provided his hotels and his aviation for Russian propaganda uh, people who replaced uh, some of the uh, Belarusian journalists when they stepped down and didn't want to support Lukashenko uh, amid, uh, you know, protests and suppression of protests. Mm. And, uh, I mean, he's also believed to be um, a frontman uh, to to own um, some of uh, Lukashenko's palaces. So Mm. there is, uh, you know, corruption and money laundering in its ugliest form and suppression involved. So I'm very glad that uh, Gutsariev, uh, you know, the most visible guy. But uh, I have to say, uh, Lukashenko uses other uh, channels for export of potash and oil. And uh, as you said, uh, you know, 
uh, other uh, entities, not just individuals, should be uh, sanctioned. So Ural Kali should be sanctioned in a way, I think, that hits Lukashenko and hits less people who work there. But still, maybe some of it is unavoidable, but uh, it has to be done because in any case, Lukashenko is treating his employees uh, of Ural Kali as, you know, semi-slaves. There are mm -hmm. medieval laws uh, on, on labor and protection of labor in, in Belarus. Then when we go down the list, uh, German Gref is the guy, is the main ally of uh, uh, Gref, yeah. He He's obviously a CEO of Sberbank and previously Minister of Economy uh, of Russia. He's uh, good friends uh, with Putin from St. Petersburg days. He's been involved in multiple corruption stories himself. And he, uh, I mean, the ugly thing about him is that he sort of pretends to be this, uh, you know, systemic yes. liberal and speaks the buzzwords that uh, the Western parlor of, you know, capital, liberal capitalism, but he's a, a complete crook and, and a criminal uh, supporting very, you know, criminal um, and aggressive foreign policy and domestic policy. Mm -hmm. um, he's invested hundreds of millions of dollars in real estate. In, I will expect he has overseen the investment of hundreds of millions of dollars in the real estate sector in Belarus also, if I'm not mistaken, correct? That, that's true. And he's also essentially Sberbank is used as this begemoth to uh, circumvent sanctions, to raise capital for some other sanctioned entities. For example, I know Sberbank is still openly using Internet banking in Europe. And uh, that gives them some you know, uh, ways to uh, get loans uh, that should be stopped. Uh, but I mean, uh, it's, a, it's a banking monopoly and he works closely with other banks that you mentioned that are also, you know, essentially state mm. state financial corporations. Well, yeah, Sparebank is the largest bank in Russia by far. Um, it is, yes. And it's uh, actually exploiting pensioners and exploiting Russian people in many uh, ugly ways. But uh, it works closely also as a fundraiser for Putin's corporations together with VTB and uh, VEB. And when necessary, they also act as political figures. We all remember how representatives met with through secret channels with um, Trump uh, campaign people and with different officials. They always try to, you know, play this uh, as if it's a corporate meeting, but uh, essentially they're doing bidding for Putin. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but uh, let me finish quickly. So uh, some of the former oligarchs uh, who are still very... Uh, so Dmitry Rebalovlev used to be this lifeline for uh, Lukashenko mm -hmm. about 10 years ago and before then. Uh, but he, uh, he was allowed, he also traded in potash, but he, and he created environmental catastrophe in, in uh, Russia uh, doing that potash business. But he was allowed to move his billions to uh, Switzerland, to Monaco, and he's, he essentially undermined a rule of law in multiple European and other Western jurisdictions in Monaco, Cyprus. Uh, Switzerland, France, uh, you name it. He's now. And he's under active criminal investigation in several of those countries, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, right? yes, he is. He and his proxies, and uh, but he still uh, is able to uh, continue uh, doing murky investments here in the U.S. in North Carolina, as as far as I remember, and received uh, taxpayers' money, and then go through bankruptcies, and then again reemerge as owner of assets. He's been involved in this very strange uh, art business. Uh, uh, say, selling uh, savior of the world, uh, uh, Salvatore Mundo to uh, oh. Saudi Arabia for $500 million. Uh, <laughs> which oh, God. still needs to be investigated, I think. But uh, beyond that, he's now building some uh, luxurious resorts in Greece. And for me, 
that's a pattern which he wants to uh, repeat uh, to co-opt elites in this uh, country, which is very important for the EU, but also for Russia. Uh, so I would be very alert on what he's doing uh, in that country. And speaking of other oligarchs, I mean, um, Paul, I think, uh, tweeted about it, that some Belarusian oligarchs are still able to hire lobbyists here in D.C. and elsewhere to yes. uh, you know, promote their causes until they are on, uh, on sanctions list. So we should get them on sanctions list much quicker so they're not able to do that. Um, I would also mention some of the uh, Western counterparts who buy fertilizers and uh, oil products from Belarus. They should, I think they should act themselves quicker and not wait for sanctions. And they should do do some kind of uh, conscientious uh, act and, and stop buying this stuff before sanctions hit. Yeah, so, Ilya, I just wanted to, I wanted to flag because you, you brought it up. That was Vladimir Pevtiev. That, yes. That, 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 that has recently hired Steptoe. Steptoe and Johnson, Vladimir, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that, that caught my eye and caught a few other people's eyes, and I saw you tweeted that, Paul. I'm going to shift to Paul quickly on this because we we seem to be behind the curve here. I mean, as Ilya pointed out, we have these, these Russian oligarchs that are taking advantage of U.S. taxpayers and in, in, in investing in, in North Carolina as well as enabling the dictator in Belarus. Paul, Paul why are we behind the curve here? Yeah, I mean, it, it's going to take a real paradigm shift in the need to sort of sanction all of these individuals – or, I mean, even better, if they've committed crimes on U.S. soil or through the U.S. financial system to indict them and try them. You know, I mean, for example, just recently, you know, uh, the, the Ukraine caucus, a group of four bipartisan co-chairs, uh, sent a letter to the Department of State, to Tony Blinken and to the Department of Justice, Attorney General Merrick Garland, essentially asking what the heck is going on with this extradition of Furtosh, you know, um, right. which is another one of these kind of stories. I mean, you, we're moving past... 30 years where we have prioritized economic integration and financialization uber alles, right? And I mean, we're getting past slowly the perception of these these oligarchs as entrepreneurs and businessmen and 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 legitimate legitimate actors. And and it was funny, I wanted to bring up that uh Kutsariev, you know, describes himself as a poet on his Wikipedia page. It's like the first <laughs> thing that comes up is he's a poet. It's like it's just it's just a it's a very funny thing, right? Because they put a lot of money into reputation laundering. They put a lot of money into, you know, quote unquote philanthropy. You know, they put a lot of they put a lot of money into into making people dependent upon them or making the those that aren't sort of read in believe that they are legitimate. So mm. it's it takes a big shift in our thinking to get to the point where we're saying, oh my goodness. You know, these guys are in our system. They're in the system of the EU. They're in the system of the UK. We need to get these guys out of here. You know, right. we, need to, we need to block them and we need to block them for us. We don't we're not blocking them so they change their behavior. We're blocking them because they need we need to we need to get them out of here. It's sanctions as containment. That's, that's the right. Way I think about that's that's a, that's exactly right, Brian. And, and I mean, that's a it's important to acknowledge what a huge paradigm shift in thinking that is. It's a, it's a paradigm shift in thinking on what is the use and meaning of sanctions. It's a paradigm shift in thinking about the global economy and the global financial system, which again, Treasury is not used to these things, right? I mean, outside of like, like targeted sanctions only begin in like the 2000s with, you know, Juan Zarate and, and terrorist financing type stuff. And then um, then they, they only just recently like with the Magnitsky Act, right, get applied for the first time to those that are abusing human rights in Russia. And then eventually with global Magnitsky, start getting applied to oligarchs and that sort of thing. But up until then, 
you don't have that. And this was just in the last few years of the last decade we're talking about, right? So yeah. it, it's it's a big, big, big shift to finally sort of say, okay, we need to use these tools to get these people uh, away from us, play keep away. Don't let them access our our shores and financial system. And the shift seems to be happening. I mean, yes. the Biden administration is putting corruption at the heart of its national security agenda in a, in a lot of ways, which I know the three of us all uh, re really welcome that. Another thing that is kind of maybe it's not new here. It looks new to me. But this whole idea of sanctioning somebody in country X for their activity supporting somebody doing something wrong in country Y, for example, sanctioning Russians as part of a Belarus sanctions package. Paul, is this a, is this that big of a change or am I reading too much into this? Um, I'm not sure if it's that big of a change because we also like when we when we hit these 65 Belarus individuals, I mean they were they're they're operating all around in different countries. I mean it's the change is and it's and it's happened slowly, but again this is like there's precursors for this in the in the fight against terrorism throughout the 2000s. We're hitting networks. Right. I mean we we have to we have to stop with this obsession with states and I and I don't think it's like I don't think it's reflective of how international relations works today. I mean, when you think about Lukashenko, when you think about Putin, when you think about Xi Jinping, these guys retain their powers through their, their power and their cronies power through corrupt networks that that span multiple states, that span different sectors in different states, that 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 include people that work in the United States, right? That include lawyers, steptoe, mm -hmm. whatever, you know, that, that that are that are US law firms or US lobbyists or something like that. And and it includes Swiss banks, or it includes Maltese. You know, like Malta has just been gray listed for that. It's crazy malfeasance in financial services. And I mean, the the sell of golden visas in Cyprus, and and these networks are just huge. They'll include multiple countries. So it, it's exactly the right thing to do to go after Gutsariev and to go after Belarus and then go after you know the actors that are supporting them. And who knows? It could be it could be UAE, right? I mean, there's this. Right. There's I, I'd read that you know Lukashenko supposedly has a lot of money yes. in Dubai, you know, so, so it's, so, I mean, it could, it could be across the board, but that's the only way you can yeah. do it. If we, if we continue with this state-based obsession, we are missing right. more than half the story. Well, and the other thing that's happening is that in the former Soviet space, even 30 years after the formal breakup of the Soviet Union, these networks still exist, right? These networks that are transnational, but were one, at one time intra-Soviet networks. And I mean, in a lot of ways, I think like we're, we're kind of experiencing the, the latest phase in the breakup of the USSR. I mean, the USSR formally yeah. broke up as a country sure. in 91. These informal networks, Paul, that you described, specifically Russia was able to maintain its dominance over yes. many of its neighbors through these networks. And right. it's it's doing this in Ukraine through these oligarchic, they're trying to do it in Ukraine with less yeah. and less success by the day, through these oligarchic networks. It continues to do it in Belarus through these through these networks. I mean, can you really uh, separate Ural Kali from Belarus Kali? I don't think so. I mean, I think it's basically one company in a lot of ways. You are you are 100% correct. And one of the, but the most extraordinary thing about this next stage of the breakup of the Soviet Union is how it has infiltrated the West, right? Yeah. I mean, I, mean I, I, I joke sometimes that even, even in Russia's, even in Russia's diminished state, even, even with Putin uh, being this, this ruler of a hollow empire as he is, he still can wield more influence in the West than Brezhnev could yep. at the height of the Soviet Union, right? I yep. mean, I mean, this is like, this is, this is, this is just such a, an extraordinary phenomenon that they've been able to make these 
informal networks truly global, yes. and they've been able to realize policy outcomes in democracies that, that the USSR would have killed to realize. Yes, the USSR yes. Would have, they, they'd be looking at what Russia achieves today, like, how, how are you doing this? The, the Nord Stream 2, and now they've got uh, Francois Fillon if, uh, gone to work for uh, a Russian oil company, former French yep. PM, like, they get a former Austrian foreign minister going. I mean, it's it's unbelievable the, yes. the kind of the Schroederization of, of the world, basically. Yeah, that's that's right. That's right. I'm so glad that Paul brought up Nord Stream 2 and Fillon being uh, joining uh, the board. Recently, just a few days ago, Putin wrote uh, an article in, in German uh, on the 80th uh, anniversary of um, invasion into, into Russia, the start of so-called Great Patriotic War. And uh, he, his conclusions were crazy, like that uh, Ukraine today trying to block Nord Stream 2 is, you know, essentially a continuation of invasion by Germany into, into Russia. But he interestingly cited that, uh, look how good were uh, gas contracts in 1970s when Germany, uh, you know, uh, despite Cold War, uh, bought our gas and uh, exchange, uh, in exchange for pipelines. And now he wants to continue with Nord Stream 2. And here, uh, I actually would say this, um, uh, these networks that you were talking about, uh, my friend uh, Catherine Belton wrote this great book recently, uh, Putin's People, about Putin's people. how, how, the, how yes. KGB, uh, including uh, uh, former uh, Prime Minister Evgeny Primakov and head of uh, SVR, how they were uh, you know, thinking of all, uh, how to exploit capitalism already in late 70s and throughout the yep. And they were, you know, testing these trade uh, KGB failed uh, trade missions in uh, Austria, uh, other Western Europe, and they 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 really succeeded in that. So these networks uh, throughout post-Soviet space they are very much built around former uh, trade missions, KGB outlets, and you you see all these former party and Komsomol officials and KGB officers filling all the uh, positions in post-Soviet space and. Their children marrying each other and inheriting positions and new KGB officers coming. So it's truly uh, a network which is not only um, built around this ent entity, KGB and party, it's also uh, now hereditary. And they're sending mm -hmm. their children to learn better and then come back to their own countries and uh, exploit Western education and uh, technology to even to oppress and uh, steal in even more sophisticated ways. So I absolutely agree that this story has been lasting, I would say, even for 40 years. And mm. we in the, in the West missed it. Uh, so now is a good time to finally disentangle this KGB party yeah. networks. No, in a lot of ways, we're seeing the success of the last major KGB operation in the West, Operation Luke. Right. You know what I'm talking Operation Luke, which was launched in the 80s with the with the idea of that in the event that communism falls in Europe, which it eventually did, that these networks would be set up. And it was all about moving money into shell companies in the West that were run by trusted agents. And guess what? We see all these names that are still with us today. Matthias Varnik, for example. Right. Yeah. Martin Schlaff. Right. All of these people that were Putin's pals uh, in, in his KGB days in Dresden who are still prominent players on the scene. So this is something and we are only beginning to wake up to this. A lot of this is the result of misreading the nature of globalization. We thought globalization was a benign Precisely. force that was going to spread liberalism. It did. 
but it also spreads illiberalism and it also spreads kleptocracy. And we, I mean, I think national security job one is figuring out the way to counter and contain this before it eats us alive. Um, any last thoughts from either of you before we move into the second half of the program? Brian, I just I just want to totally endorse what you've said. And I, I also, though, want to flag that we are up against really serious inertia here. You know, yeah. I mean, we're we're up against a bureaucracy that's been built for the Cold War that only saw change when we were in the war on terror. Right. That's the the one time we've seen any sort of serious change. But I mean, we are up against a bureaucracy that 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 has is having a very, very, very tough time understanding what's going on, a state based Westphalian structure that that is having a very, very, very tough time to ad at adapting. So it's it's going to take some really serious, you know, crowbar in the door and yeah. and pushing here to get the change we need. I think we are. I think we're in the midst of it, but it it's huge. It is nothing less than a paradigm shift. Yeah, yeah. And in addition to the bureaucratic inertia, there are also the uh, the networks of influence in Western countries, including the United well, States, right. yeah. that have a financial interest in not opposing this because they're getting rich off of it that's, um, that's right. while it is undermining our democratic institutions. All right. Well, on, on that note, we'll shift gears. In a few moments, we will continue our discussion and look at some of the legislation in the works in the Helsinki Commission and the Congress at large to combat strategic corruption and weaponized kleptocracy. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host, my name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from Washington, D.C.'s hip DuPont Circle neighborhood is Ilya Zaslavsky, a senior fellow at the Free Russia Foundation. And joining us from Capitol Hill is the one and only Paul Massaro, a policy advisor at the United States Commission for Security and Cooperation in Europe, better known as the U.S. Helsinki Commission, an independent bipartisan and bicameral commission in the United States Congress. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. And if you do, please leave us a rating and review as it helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. So June has apparently uh, been counter kleptocracy month. Um, Hashtag and klepto month. <laughs> and the reason I know this, the only reason I know, not the only reason, but the reason I know this um, is because my email box has been filled with messages from one of our guests helpfully informing me about what measures the U.S. Congress is working on to combat strategic corruption from adversaries like Russia. For example, the Helsinki Commission has introduced the Foreign Corruption Accountability Act, which authorizes visa bans against corrupt officials who use their power for extortion. Paul, what is Counter Kleptocracy Month? Why is it important? And what else do you got cooking? So it's very exciting, a whole month dedicated to fighting kleptocracy. And I, and I do want to walk us through sort of week by week, but I guess very broad strokes first, sort of, it's it's what we just kind of concluded with, that we need this paradigm shift, but we're up against a lot of inertia. Well, the great thing about the U.S. constitutional system is Congress is that crowbar. The job of Congress is precisely to screw around with the bureaucracy when things aren't working or when things are out of place, right? And some of the best ideas in history have come out of the Helsinki Commission. I mean, we all remember sort of like 
the Magnitsky Act, right? The Magnitsky Act was the beginning of this paradigm shift, the first time we used targeted sanctions on human rights abusers and corrupt officials, right? So it actually took these tools that were developed to fight terrorism and then applied them to kleptocracy. And to me, that's where I mark sort of the, the beginning of this shift that's happened over the last decade. And now we're at a very huge juncture, I, I hope really kind of a crossroads. Inflection point, yeah. Yeah, in, inflection point. That was exactly the word I was looking for. It's a crossroads inflection point in, in the fight. And I and I really do think we are, because I, I reflect in the last year, and I think, look, Congress has passed beneficial ownership transparency. Congress passed the Kleptocracy Asset Recovery Rewards Program. Congress passed the Rodchenkov Anti-Doping Act. And now we have an administration that has put this at the core of its foreign policy, at least rhetorically. And we, we expect that, you know, the study memorandum within the next 200 days will yield some really solid outcomes. So, that kind of brings me to the Counter-Kleptocracy Month discussion. And the Counter-Kleptocracy Month is, a, is an initiative of the Caucus Against Foreign Corruption and Kleptocracy, which is also a brand new institutionalized entity within Congress. Uh, it's a group of bipartisan members that focuses on these issues, focuses on fighting foreign corruption and kleptocracy, focuses on protecting the United States from the threat of kleptocracy, particularly, you know, the your average American. Um, and, and I think that, you know, it's it's really important to recognize just how kleptocracy is destroying the lives of average Americans all over the place. You know, you go out anywhere in the United States and you'll find Americans that are fed up with sort of the corruption in D.C., fed up with the lack of opportunities, fed up with this idea that there's there's this global elite that's taking advantage of them. And all of this is a reflection of these corrupt networks, right? I mean, when you, they're intuitively, instinctually understanding the fact that, yeah, globalization hasn't worked out like we thought it was going to work out and things need to change, you know, and then they're led in different directions and perhaps there's, their understanding might not be so sophisticated, but they get it. You know, and and members want to act, and members see this, and constituents see it, and everybody's being affected by it. So that's the origin of the caucus against foreign corruption and kleptocracy, which is, by the way, led by representatives Milanowski, Curtis, Keating, and Fitzpatrick. So mm -hmm. really great, two Democrats, two Republicans. This is fully bipartisan, and and overall 19 currently uh, and growing uh, members of Congress. So really great thing. So that first week we announced the caucus. And then 24 hours later, the president announced that corruption right. is a core national security and countering corruption is a, is a core national security interest of the United States. So that was very exciting. So we, we really kicked off counter kleptocracy month in the in the biggest way. And then we've we've said we'll be introducing a bill every month and highlighting all sorts of events and, and things like that. And Brian, you've you've mentioned my blasts and and we have and and there's a caucus Twitter even at Klepto Caucus. And that second week we launched the caucus, and I really encourage everyone to take a look at that launch event. All the members spoke. Senator Cardin spoke. We had uh, some of the great luminaries from the community speak. And we introduced the bipartisan and bicameral Justice for Victims of Kleptocracy Act, which is a very simple but potentially very impactful bill um, that requires the Department of Justice to publish, so make available publicly, the assets, the dirty assets that have been stolen, hidden in the United States, and recovered by U.S. law enforcement. And they're going to do this by country, and they're going to say, assets stolen from the Ukrainian people and recovered by the United States, assets stolen from the Russian people and recovered by the United States, so on and so forth, say how much that is. And this is a really important initiative because, mm. you know, the United States spends a lot of resources in recovering the money that's been, been stolen and hidden here. And of course, there's much more we have to do. But the United States does have a dedicated body for this, the Kleptocracy Asset Recovery Initiative at DOJ, and we want to demonstrate to the peoples of the world that we, you know, we stand with you. We're on your side. We're, we 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 want to fight kleptocracy, but then when we recover this money, we can't immediately give it back, right? We can't we can't immediately give it back because if we if you if you give Putin's money back to him, he's just going to steal it all over again, you know. So you gotta you gotta be careful about that. 
the model has to be, I think, and this just came into my head, but like the model we used with the Baltic states following the Soviet occupation after the Second World War, where all of their assets that were in the West were basically held in escrow for them until they were free yep. again, yep. Like, including and, 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 a beautiful building down the street from me that is the Lithuanian embassy. Um, so. Right. And that's a great example of that. And, I, and I've always found it to be a huge credit to the United States that we never recognized the occupation of the Baltics, um, the Baltic states. I mean, it's it's extremely important. And that's exactly the kind of model we're thinking of with this Justice for Victims of Democracy Act. We want to have the money out there, demonstrate to all that we've got this money. And the second, you know, there is democratic governance, the second there is accountable governance, this money's coming back at you. We're going to build uh, a rule of law society. And that's wonderful. So then the third week, as you said, Brian, we introduced the Foreign Corruption Accountability Act. Um, now, this fourth week we're in, um, and, and there were many events. Uh, Senator Cardin had been speaking every, everywhere. We've launched this Helsinki Commission report on secure supply chains, actually look, thinking about, like, what makes a supply chain secure? Rule of law. You know, that's right. kind of the thesis of, of what we're talking about here. And then now we're in the fourth week. We have already had a huge kickoff with the Combating Global Corruption Act and the Global Magnitsky um, Reauthorization Act passing the Senate committee. Uh, very exciting right. stuff. And we expect the introduction of the Golden Visa Accountability Act this uh -huh. week, oh, that's which would okay. direct that's the State Department to share Golden Visa denials with other countries, friends and allies, so that we can stop sort of the shopping for Golden Visas. And just as like, just as like background, a Golden Visa is, of course, a, you know, an, a quote unquote investor visa. Kleptocrats take advantage of these things. They got lots of dirty money. They can buy themselves a visa or passport to get access to the United States or the European Union. Um, eventually resulting in citizenship. So we're we're attacking this from all sides. You know, we're we're going after the punitive angle. We want to do visa bans, sanctions, indictments. We're also going after the protection angle, ensuring that mm. we're not, you know, providing access. And then we're also going around after the the rule of law promotion angle. Right. Um, you know, which is which is helping others to, you know, get their systems together and realize rule of law societies. And to me, those are the those are the three pillars of the mm. fight against kleptocracy. Protect the home front. Fight the kleptocrats and help others. You know, work with the international mm -hmm. community to build the rule of law abroad. And, it, and it's getting some resonance. I just happened to see come across my feed today um, Oliver Bulla's excellent newsletter, um, Vincoda yes. story. Will kleptocracy become a unifying enemy for the West? This is this is the headline of Oliver Bulla's newsletter today. So it is it, it getting out there. Ilya, you've been working on these. In fact, you and I actually met. Years ago, when both of us were speaking before the Helsinki Commission in the United States Congress, how do you view these new pieces of legislation? Is there anything more that needs to be done? There seems to be a lot on the docket right now. Exactly. We were invited both by Paul. Uh, and uh, at that time, I actually thought, how interesting. U.S. is leading the Western world in fighting kleptocracy. Congress is leading the U.S. among other branches, and the Helsinki Commission is leading the Congress. So you, your uh, poll is really, and the Helsinki Commission is really the uh, sharp end of the spear uh, uh, in the West uh, against the Congress. <laughs> I'm, I'm saying this uh, with a lot of gratitude because it took uh, literally a decade for, more than a decade for Russian activists and opposition to to come uh, to bring across some of these messages that which are now finally resonating uh, and having effect but um obviously we should not be complacent i would say uh we need more mandatory sanctions uh which the executive power uh, has to uh, implement we i mean uh, speaking specifics uh, uh, i've heard that apparently in the global uh, magnitsky reauthorization there is now a discussion of uh corruption associated with Nord Stream 2 and that U.S. bodies should verify if uh, corruption was involved 
you know, with Gazprom figures and, and, and with construction of that pipeline, which is a great thing if, if it's true. And uh, we've been writing about, you know, how Gazprom is a corrupt monopoly and it's bringing corruption to, to Europe. Uh, I mean, if if I'm incorrect, please please correct me, Paul. So so, so Ilya, actually, can I pick up on something else you said? Because 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 I, I think yeah. that 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 idea that it, like it's finally coming across is really important, and that and that is to say, I see us right now as having crossed the first major hurdle. That is to say, not only don't get complacent, but like we need to we need to pick up momentum. Like this is the the first major step of this paradigm shift has occurred, but it's by no means the whole paradigm shift. And and, it, and it's by no means where we need to be. I mean, we need to get to a point where the idea of taking dirty money from a kleptocracy would be equivalent to taking money from the Soviets, right? Like, I mean, you need to, right. we need to get to a point where, where people are so knowledgeable and so like the narrative is so clear yep. on kleptocracy that you, that you just wouldn't do it. That step toe wouldn't work for a corruption Lukashenko is money. the new communism. That's that's right. You're exactly right, Brian. And I mean, I I, I read this wonderful Oliver Bulow piece too, and and I mean, they he also makes the great point, one that I am a, a very big believer in. That like, I mean, the 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 main aspect that is different in this Cold War dynamic is that you know, the the sides are are much more integrated, right? The money is here. You know, like it's it's not like the you know Brian, you've told me before, you know the hermetically sealed systems of the Cold War, right? I mean, if this is this this is mm. these are integrated, um, and that makes it much 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 harder. I mean, I I absolutely think corruption is the new communism, but in one sense, it's going to be a lot harder to fight. You know, I mean, yeah. uh, imagine imagine if we had all of these officials in the USA who are sympathetic toward the Soviet Union. We had nobody <laughs> are, that was sympathetic or, or toward or the Soviet Union. Their payroll. Or who are on their literally payroll. on their payroll. This is, yeah, this is why this is more insidious because you know communism, for all its faults, did try to appeal to this ideal, right? Yeah. Where what, what corruption does is it, it appeals to the basest human instinct there yeah. is, greed, and greed is powerful, right? Yeah. Paul, one thing I wanted to get in here because I think this is something that is definitely bears emphasizing is a lot of those that have been pushing for these, uh, the, these sanctions and these tough anti-kleptocracy measures directed against authoritarian states like Russia and Belarus happen to be Russians and Belarusians, yeah. right? The people that were leading the fight on this were Ilya, were Vladimir Karamorza, another good friend of this podcast, the Free Russia Foundation, Natalia Arno, great work they've been doing there, Franak Vachorka, another friend of this podcast, you know, have been pushing for the toughest possible sanctions against Russia and Belarus. And these are people who, you know, are patriotic Russians and Belarusians. That's right. How important is that for you, Paul? I mean, and people like you in the Congress in getting this done and getting this over the finish line, how important is it to have Russians and Belarusians fighting on this side of us and being being the, a lot of ways the public face of this? Well, and let me and let me say this is the same sort of thing is true for Venezuela. It's true for China, true certainly for Hong Kong true for the genocide in Xinjiang. It's true all over the place. I mean, this is this is the whole key. You absolutely need this. This is true patriotism. True Russian patriotism is standing against Putin. The person that's hurt the Russian people more than anyone else is Vladimir Putin. Hands down. Absolutely. I mean, I mean it's the, it's the same it's the same thing with Belarus, same thing with Venezuela and Maduro. I mean, it goes it goes on and on and on and on. I mean, I mean this is absolutely the case that true Russian patriotism, true Venezuelan patriotism, true is standing against these dictators. Who have who have done nothing but enrich themselves and their cronies at the expense of the Russian people. So the goal, Brian, for me is that the United States stand with the victims of kleptocracy. That is absolutely the number one position we should be taking. Is that the USA needs to have a new ethos of saying 
We are the champion of the victims of kleptocracy. We will always stand with the victims of kleptocracy. And we will, we will one day, I hope, get to a point where kleptocracy is not generating more victims. Right. right. Ilya, anything to add to that? Um, I would add, uh, as with communism, the uh, U.S. stood with victims of communism, but was also defending itself. It was an existential threat, really, and the two competing systems. I think, uh, in a way, it's the same thing right now, although the existential threat is not, is not as much visible and, and straightforward to some people. And that's exactly what we should do. We should uh, show civil society, show policymakers that how exactly it becomes an existential threat. But altogether, uh, we should not be uh, complacent because very quickly, uh, the West together, EU, Japan and Canada and US, it's how, how many people? Maybe just over 1 billion people. Our GDP in the world is actually shrinking. Uh, we, we, we are oasis of democracy. Uh, we are not, you know, any longer as after Second World War, we are this uh, half of the world. We, in many ways, we are a minority. And our job is to make sure that we are not a shrinking minority and that we uphold this oasis of democracy, really, against Eurasian kleptocracy. So we truly live in dire times when this uh, creeping uh, Eurasian kleptocracy is overtaking the world, really, in, in many quarters of the world, at least. Ilya, I, I agree with you. I, I want to just, you know, touch on some notes of optimism, though, in that, I, you know, I, I certainly think uh, you know, democracy always blooms in the hardest spaces. I mean, we, we've seen that before many times. We we see it right now. People like you, you know, people like people like these Venezuelan activists, people like these Chinese activists, you know, that are doing that have come and are, are supporting democracy. But let me also say, just like from a, a pure power perspective, the U.S. dollar is unbelievably powerful, more powerful than it's ever been in history. And I mean, there we should we should not ever sell ourselves short. We should not ever get to a point where we think we have to engage with Putin or we have to engage with Xi Jinping or whatever. There's no reason to do that. We still hold all the cards. We should still be extremely selective with how we engage with dictatorships. And we should still be ready to bring the hammer down. You know, I guess I guess it is an existential threat. It's something we need to go against, but we should also not sell ourselves short. We should stop, we should not be scared. We should not be fearful. In fact, we should be bold. We should be out there and we should be shutting down dictatorship everywhere it's found. And we have the tools to do it and we can do it. I just can't emphasize enough that the United States needs to sort of find its soul again, find its purpose again. And that purpose is to fight dictatorship. That's, I mean, that's, we fought aristocratic dictatorship. We fought fascist dictatorships. We fought communist dictatorship. Now we're fighting kleptocratic dictatorship, you know? Being an optimist by nature, Paul, I can think of no better way to close out the program unless Ilya has anything to tag on to that. Oh, I will keep my uh, Russian, uh, you know, uh, fatalist kind of vision. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I actually, I am an optimist as well. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm a mixture of this Russian Jewish tradition. Uh, I can nag you with pessimism for a while, but overall, I'm actually, uh, in the long term, I'm, I'm optimist as well. No, I, I think we should. I think we should close out on that optimistic note and send us all into our weekends. On that note, we'll wrap it up because that's all we have time for today. I'd like to remind you: you have been listening to the Power Critical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an adjunct assistant professor at UTA and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. Joining me from Washington D.C.'s hip Dupont Circle neighborhood, just down the street from me, has been Ilya Zaslav. 
Kozlovsky, a senior fellow at the Free Russian Foundation. And joining us from Capitol Hill, where he's celebrating his birthday, has been the one and only Paul Massaro, a policy advisor at the United States Commission for Security and Cooperation in Europe, better known as the U.S. Helsinki Commission, an independent, bipartisan, and bicameral commission of the United States Congress. Thank you, gentlemen, for an enlightening, lively, and enlightening discussion. Thank you, Brian. Always a pleasure. I'd also like to thank our awesome production team. Lance Legas is in the virtual control room. He keeps all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Mariah Jalad handles our all-important post-production duties, making us all sound a whole hell of a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. And if you do, please leave us a rating and review as it helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at PowerVertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at PowerVertical. Join us again next week. And until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix prepared by our production team.